0: If you're wanting a theme on what is Revelation about, the book is not about charts that give you a perfect synopsis of what's going to happen in the end. That is not the point of Revelation. The theme, the overall point, the purpose of Revelation is to reveal the stunning glory of resurrected Jesus. That's the bottom line. It is revealing his stunning glory as he will defeat all evil and then gather his resurrected people together that will worship him for eternity. And this is what it's about the glory of Jesus, gathering a people that will worship him forever. And so you see many different worship scenes throughout Revelation. And more than once, you see the people that are gathered together, and that is the point. Revelation 1 is an awe-inspiring chapter. We looked at that last week. And as is our custom in our faith family, what is proclaimed on a Sunday, we will then go into our home groups, and we will discuss it further, and we will go a little bit deeper, and we will apply it, and we will feed ourselves as a home group from the Word of God. And this last Wednesday I sat in the living room with my home group and it was a just remarkable discussion. I mean seeing people of God in the living room enjoying each other and just feeding their souls from God's word and we just and we just sat there in awe. It was it was a goose bump Inducing just awe inspiring evening where the consensus was man, Jesus is way more glorious than we typically think or give him credit for. And the images that we usually have about who Jesus is really aren't accurate because when you read in Revelation chapter one, you see Jesus in radiant glory. And remember, John, who received this vision, he was one of the disciples. He was one of the inner three, Peter, James, and John. So this is John. This is the person who, in the Gospel of John, he says, disciple whom Jesus loved. And so John knew Jesus well. And we talked about on Wednesday evening in our home group was John stood in absolute awe and he fell as a man who was dead when he saw the son of man with eyes like a flame of fire and feet like burnished bronze refined in a furnace with a voice like a roar of a waterfall of many waters and out of his mouth came a sharp two edged sword and his face was like the sun shining full strength. The resurrected, radiant glory of Jesus. Because when Jesus came to earth, he emptied himself of his full glory. And yet here is John seeing Jesus as he is, resurrected, full glory. And it's like, I don't even know him. John didn't even recognize him. He's just falling down. And then Jesus does something. We looked at this last week. He puts his right hand on the shoulder of John. And says, Fear not. For I am the living one. I died, but I'm alive forevermore. I hold the keys of death and Hades. When he felt the touch of John and heard, or the voice of Jesus and heard and felt his touch, that Changed everything. And how can anyone fear when this Jesus, the true resurrected Jesus, is right there with his hand on your shoulder? There is no way that any of us could possibly fear anything with Jesus there. And so, this is how Jesus is revealed in Revelation 1. And when we see him as he really is, We talked about this Wednesday night too. We said, man, this is a game changer. It changes how we even worship. It changes our thoughts when we're singing to him. It changes how we think. It changes how we feel. It changes how we pray. It changes how we love people. This changes everything. Seeing the glory of God in the face of Jesus is exactly what changes everything. And that's what you see in Revelation 1 is seeing Jesus as he really is, and he gives this letter. He reveals the book and tells John that this is a letter, a personal message from Jesus to his churches. These were seven actual, literal churches in the first century in Asia Minor. Today we call it Turkey. It's modern-day Turkey, and Jesus was speaking to them. We talked about this last week as well. Because there's seven, and number seven refers to the sense of completion that Jesus is speaking to all of his churches of all time. It wasn't just those seven. It's designed to be a letter for all the churches. And the church is described as lamps that are designed to shine light into the darkness and to radiate this glory of Jesus. And so this series is called Radiant. And the prayers, it will become a vibrant church that radiates God's glory. And we will learn how by looking at these churches. Let's look at the first one, this first church that received a letter from Jesus. Revelation chapter 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walked among the seven stars golden lampstands. So that's just verse 1. So Jesus told John to write down this letter to the church in the city of Ephesus. So specifically, he says, to the angel of the church in Ephesus. So each one of these seven churches begin the same way. It's Jesus telling John to write this down. And it says, and all of them, to the angel of the church of, in this case, Ephesus. And you see that same phrase repeated. And so I think it raises the question, who are these angels? Because it's writing to the angel of the church. And it says that for all of these seven churches Now, if I'm going to be honest with you, I am not 100% sure. And I don't say that very often. I usually come across as very confident, and I know what I believe from the word. But there are times when there is some mystery. So the word angel in the original angelos means messenger. Just like in the Hebrew, melech means messenger. It's the same. So when you read the word angel, that's what it means. It means messenger. And so there are people that I respect, that I, that I love their teaching and their sound doctrine, and they argue, well, when he's writing to the angel of the church of Ephesus, he's talking about writing to the messenger of the church of Ephesus. So what that means is that is the lead pastor, the person who proclaims the message. And so he's writing to the human being The pastor who represents that church and who is a primary messenger or proclaimer of the message. And so he's writing to the pastor who will then like read it to the whole church. And so that's logical. That makes sense. The The word angel does mean messenger. And so there are good people that believe that. I just don't agree with them. And the reason why I don't agree with them is because over 60 times in Revelation, the word angel appears. And outside of these seven times, verse with the churches, it is very clearly obvious in the text. It is not a human pastor over a church. It is a heavenly being. It is clearly an angel. Like This is what you see in Revelation when he uses the word angel and halos throughout the entire book. And so to me, it's a, you're, you're kind of playing games with the word. And I don't want to do that. And if there's mystery, let there be mystery. But I don't want to play games with the Bible. And so to me, when I read this and I see the word angel in the book, in its context, means heavenly being, then I'm going to assume that it means that same thing, when it's talking about the angel of each church. And so, what exactly does that mean? Where does that leave us? Well, back to this sense of mystery, but here's what it seems to me as I read this that there are representative angels that God, like, assigns to churches to oversee them, to watch over them, to be fighting for them in the spiritual realm. Because let's be honest, there are real spirit beings. And just because you can't see them doesn't mean that they're not there. There are many poisonous gases that you can't see or feel or smell, and yet they will still kill you. They're still present, even though they're invisible to our naked eye. There are real demons and real angels. There are real spirit beings in our world. And so I believe, being consistent with the word angel, that God is talking about here how there is a, like, representative angel that is set to fight for and to watch over local churches. So that would assume that there is, like, the angel of renewal church which is a little bit, it's, it might feel weird to you, but I'm just trying to be consistent with what the Bible says, that there seems to be an angel, an angel that is set to watch over and to protect the church in the spiritual realm. There's probably more that we could say or pontificate about that, but I'll leave that there because the Bible doesn't explain a whole lot about this. And so we, we have to just live with the sense of, of mystery and just trust in God what that looks like. But I do believe that, that there is an angel that is assigned to, to watch over this gathering. Because this church, and I'm sure many of you know this, has been under assault. There are people that I talk to regularly in this gathering that know what it's like to have very real spiritual warfare, and that we know from the word that angels are partaking in this battle, and so we trust God with that. But I do want to make one thing very clear about this, is that we do not pray to or seek to talk to or to in any way worship angels, because angels are fellow created beings that are fellow worshipers of God. Now, different nature from us, they're not human, they're spirit beings, but we don't worship them. They also worship God the way we do, and they're messengers. They serve the same God that we serve, and so we are not to, like, preoccupy ourselves and and, and pray to or talk to angels. Like, that's not what we do. We pray to God. We focus on Jesus, and you let the angels do what they do, and you don't have to really worry about them. But enough of that. Verse 1 says, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand. And so these stars are these angels that are watching over the churches that are in the right hand of God. And so that is absolute authority. Jesus has authority over the angels that are watching over the churches. And Jesus is described as the one who walks among the seven stars golden lampstands and so the temple contained a lampstand with seven lamps or candles if you will on it and so that was in the holy place on the other side of the holy of holies so in the holy place there was this lamp one lamp with seven individual or one lampstand with seven lamps on it so this was in the temple and so here you're picking the same imagery but it's different now Each church is one individual lampstand. Again, this is just showing that Jesus has sovereignty, authority over and is tending to. He himself is tending over all of his churches, with seven meaning this picture of perfection, of completion, wholeness. And so God is watching over his whole church, represented as individual lampstands that Jesus, the priest, is watching and tending to. So this is, this is the beautiful picture of a church's purpose as tended by Jesus is to shine a light, to radiate, to reflect the glory of God. And you have the church of Ephesus, and this is a very important church that we have a lot to learn from. So before we dig into verses two through seven and learn about this church and the message that applies to us, I want to give you a little bit of historical Context. So I want to pull up a map here on the screen. And so this is a map. uh, No, that's not. There you go. And so this map is of the western part of Turkey. And that water there is the Aegean Sea. If you would keep going west, you would eventually hit Greece. It's not that far. And so Patmos on your screen on the bottom left hand corner. That is where John was. We talked about this last week. John was in this island of Patmos, and he was doing slave labor. He was there in by the Roman emperor. And so this is around AD 95 or so. So this is maybe 60 years after Jesus resurrected and ascended. And if you go across the Sea and you get to the, off the coast and you get to Turkey, the first major city there is Ephesus. Now, if you look at these churches in sequence, this is the seven churches that Jesus writes to. And it's interesting to note that they are in a circular pattern. This was a common trade route. This is the path that basically the mail would be carried. And so a courier would get to Ephesus' first major city on the port and then follow the roads to Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea and just follow that path. And so when you read these seven letters in Revelation 2 and 3, they follow that exact same sequence because it's the same path that you would carry a letter, which is what Revelation is. It's a letter to the churches. So Ephesus was the crown jewel. Of Asia Minor, again modern-day Turkey, it was it was a massive city. It was very wealthy, very well known. It was home to over twenty pagan temples. It was marked by artistic beauty, with marbled um, roads and with columns, and gardens, and fountains, and gymnasiums, and bathhouses, and Uh, all kinds of attractions from the ancient world including a library and a large theater it was just a, a it was a tourist hub and at the heart of its cultural and religious and political and even financial so economic heart was one temple the temple to artemis also known as diana so artemis was the Greek goddess of fertility. And so it was a very erotic goddess. And there were temple prostitutes that were called prophets. And you would go and you could worship Artemis by seeing a temple prostitute. Like This was how they worshipped. It was dark, it was evil, but it was very popular. And so people from all across the world would go to this massive temple that had almost 200 columns and was this incredible just eye to behold. And it was known as one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. Like it was just magnificent. And it was a cash cow. Because people would come from all over the world to see one of these wonders and go worship Artemis, and it just led to great wealth for the city of Ephesus and for those that were in power. And so worship of Artemis made them rich and powerful. You can imagine that the locals didn't really appreciate believers preaching about worshiping Jesus and not Artemis because that was cutting into their profit margins. It was all about the money, Always has been, always will be. Now, what about the actual church of Ephesus? Well, Acts 18 through 20 describe how Paul planted Ephesus. And he put some of his co-laborers there, like Priscilla and Aquila, that were colleagues of Paul, he left them there to minister, and even another man named Apollos. Now, if you know, if you heard the name of Apollos, he was a well-known preacher. Like, he was a fiery, like, celebrity preacher. If you read when Paul writes to the Corinthians, when they're all being divided, some are saying, oh, I'm of Peter. Oh, I'm of Paul. Oh, I'm of Apollos. And they all had their favorite celebrity preacher. Well, Apollos was one of them, and according to Acts, he was a very good preacher and a fiery preacher. If you were alive today, he'd be a celebrity preacher, who'd be on the probably the like a conference circuit with millions of followers on Instagram, and he would have all of these popular YouTube videos, and he would have been like a big-shot all-Star preacher. And then on Paul's second missionary journey, Paul himself stayed about three years in Ephesus. So can you just stop and think, like, who was pastoring Ephesus? The Ephesian church had Paul's trained people, Apollos, who was an amazing preacher. Paul himself, he wrote half the New Testament. And he was preaching for three years at Ephesus. I mean, talk about an all-star pastoral staff. Like, you can't get better teaching than Paul himself and those that he trained. And then when Paul left, he left Timothy there, another person that he had personally trained. And so the Ephesian church was probably the best taught, most theologically precise church that existed in the ancient world. I mean, they had Paul as their pastor. Um, I can't even begin to imagine how well they knew the Bible and how theologically accurate they were. So picture this, okay? Best pastors, amazing preaching, and yet hated by society. And yet the church is growing. And now, fast forward over 30 years later, so a generation Not hundreds of years later, maybe 30 or so years later, you have a letter from Jesus straight to the Ephesian church. And what is the message that he has for this church? Verses 2 and 3. I know your works because he's Jesus, so he knows everything. I know your works, your toil. Your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Jesus gives them nine specific compliments. He praises them for their good works, for their toil, for their patient endurance for not tolerating evil, for testing false teaching, for identifying that false teaching, and then a second time, for their patient endurance, and then working hard, laboring for Jesus, and then not growing weary. So he gives them nine specific affirmations on you're doing all this well. And if you want to put it into like two categories, there are basically two. He's like, there's good works, you're doing good things, you're serving in ministry, you have good behavior, you don't tolerate evil, you're living a moral life, you're you're working hard, and so good works, and then good theology. You know the truth, you spot false teaching, and you call it out, and you don't tolerate evil, And, and so he says you have good works and good theology. Now remember, this was a hard environment where they were being persecuted and it was great hardship for the Ephesian church and yet they're standing strong against the culture. And quite honestly, Ephesus and modern day U.S. feel awfully similar to me. It might look different, but it really is no different. Just go to Vegas, that's basically Ephesus. Ephesus. And so good works and good theology in a hard environment. Verse 4, but I have this against you. He's like, I have one thing, only one against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. In light of all the good theology and all of their good serving in ministry, morality, all of the good works and the good theology, he's like, I have one thing against you just one, you have abandoned your first love. The theme of this letter to the Ephesian church is about empty religion. The Ephesian church was no longer vibrant. They were not radiating God's glory. Now, they look great on the outside. If you would have driven by, you would have seen probably a big, beautiful building. You would have seen a very large gathering. You would have seen a lot of activities, a lot of programs. You would have seen a lot of Bible studies. You would have seen a lot of theology conversations over coffee. You would have seen a lot that looked good, a lot of work, a lot of ministry, a lot of serving, a lot of morality, a lot of not bearing with evil. It would have been a whole lot that would have looked great, You said, man, that church is just rocking it. That church is just awesome. They have great theology and great behavior. It's empty, dead on the inside. I have one thing against you, and this one thing is everything. And if you have everything else and you miss this one thing, You missed everything. It's empty religion. Outside looks good. Inside is hollowed out. Let me give you three truths from this text about empty religion. The first one, the danger. So the danger of empty religion. So let's discuss for a second about the dangers of this. You see, what we're seeing from this letter to the Ephesian church is that it is possible to be alive to religion and dead to God. Your life can be filled with religious activity and a busy church schedule, then have all the appearances and, and be a moral person and miss the whole point. Have a heart that is actually far from God. So I'll say it this way. We can have perfect theology and a packed schedule, but empty on the inside. This was the Ephesian church. Is your soul truly satisfied in Jesus? Or has the richness of the Bible just kind of lost its taste? where you you taste the word and it's just kind of insipid or bland or boring to you? Has it lost its taste? Are your prayers vibrant? Are they filled with sensing God's presence? Or are your prayers distracted and brief to non-existent? Do you yearn to hear God's word in the gathering or are you here on a Sunday out of some social obligation or so that your wife won't get mad at you or are you here for whatever other reason but really your mind and your heart is far from here and anything that I say or is sung it's just like water on a duck's back like it just slides right off and makes it doesn't penetrate And you are just really disinterested in whatever anyone from the Word has to say. Is your heart bored with God? Is your heart far from God? Is your soul today in the sense of darkness? Do you find yourself believing lies? The lie that God doesn't love you. The lie that God has let you down. The lie that God has abandoned you. The lie that he can't use you anymore. The lie that he can't satisfy your soul. The the lie that you can find more joy elsewhere than in Jesus. The lie that he can't give you freedom. Delighted, this is as good as it's going to get with your shallow, performance based, legalistic, appearances only religion. They're lies. Because Jesus wants you to know him, to truly enjoy him, to encounter him, and to satisfy your soul. You know, I think sometimes our souls can be hurting more than we want to even admit. I'll speak for me. Like, this is me speaking. I'm not speaking for you. This is my own confession. Several years ago, I had to come to grips with the fact that I used theology as a way to hide. And I would would use my theological knowledge and my seminary training and throwing out big words and impressing people with all my Bible knowledge and no one would ever ask me, Matthew, how are you? No one ever asked me that. Why would they ask me that? I didn't give them a chance. Because I had built a wall. And the wall was... I've got all my stuff together. The wall was, I've got it all figured out. I know the Bible better than you, and so therefore you just listen to me, and I don't actually need anyone to get close enough because my soul was actually in so much pain. I was bleeding out from the inside. But no one knew it, and no one got close because of my theological wall that I built up, and I loved serving Jesus. I loved preaching about Jesus. I loved doing things for Jesus, but I didn't actually enjoy Jesus. And I didn't actually sense his presence, and I didn't really know what it felt like to feel his presence, I was hollowed out. And God had to break me and expose me for the evil that that was and acknowledge that biblical knowledge and a busy schedule, a busy ministry even schedule, can be a front to keep people including to keep Jesus himself out. Maintaining the facade, continuing to pose, and playing the game. The whole point of your life is not to work for Jesus. The point of your life is not to even know facts about Jesus. Jesus. The point of your life is to know and to enjoy Jesus, to worship Jesus, to experience his presence, his joy. It's all about worshiping Jesus, not about knowing things about him or serving him. It is like we talked about this earlier a few weeks ago, and it's not just working for Jesus, it's living with Jesus. So that's just living for him. It's living with Jesus. That's the point is to live with him, to enjoy him. And so abstract theological knowledge doesn't expose your soul. It doesn't heal your soul. The Holy Spirit heals. The Holy Spirit brings that healing and that transformation. It is Jesus himself who does that. Jesus did not die on the cross and resurrect from the dead, take away your sin, to then let you live with empty religion. He died on the cross so that you could enjoy his presence, be reconciled to him, actually feel his love, and to love him back. Many believers, I've noticed because I've been there, can live on the surface, and is remarkably shallow and phony, it's just fake. But what we need is to truly encounter Jesus. 2 Timothy 3, 5 summarizes what we're talking about here with empty religion on all the good works, good theology, and heart that's far from God. It says, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. That's the biggest problem in Bell County. When I look across... I see a whole county with thousands of people that have the appearance of godliness but deny its power. They have a whole bunch of empty religion but don't actually encounter Jesus, don't actually know him. So the danger of empty religion is that we can be blind to it and that we can have all the activity and the knowledge, but that's all you've got, activity and knowledge, then you have Nothing if you don't actually enjoy and love Jesus. And the reason why is empty religion is man-centered, not Jesus-centered. Empty religion is in our own strength. So it's fueled by our own willpower. It's for our own glory, not for God's glory. Empty religion is about checking the box so that we maintain the appearance and it keeps us far from God. And empty religion, being man centered, does not radiate the glory of God. It radiates human sinfulness. So there are real dangers in empty religion and not truly loving Jesus. Number two, let's talk about detecting empty religion. So if there's a danger in it. Let's talk about how we can detect it. How can we identify it in our hearts, this empty religion? I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. How would you feel if your spouse served you very faithfully and served you so faithfully that he or she even made that known publicly? Like they put her on Facebook. Oh, I served my wife today. Oh, I put up with him today like publicly let everyone know i i love my wife i serve her so well publicly and then maybe you even know a lot of facts about your wife like you know when she was born and you know you know her preferences and and you know you know where she lived growing up and you know all these facts about your wife so you serve her publicly and you know facts about her but you never actually talk to her you never actually take her on a date you never actually spend time with her you never actually enjoy her you just talk about publicly how much you serve her how much you know about her but you never actually really take time to treasure your spouse How is that marriage going to work out for you? You won't get very far. You won't even get past one year. It won't work. Because it's fake. You're just posing. It's not real. If it's real, you don't have to flaunt it on Facebook. You just enjoy it with him or with her. It's real. And your serving flows out of love for them. It's a real relationship. And so how can you detect if, if what you have is an empty religion where you may have the knowledge and activity and yet your heart might be far from God? How do you detect that? I'll just, I'll just ask you one brief question to detect that. Do you have duty or delight in Jesus? That's the question. That is a penetrating, probing question that helps us to detect what's going on. Is it duty or is it delight? Because if it's duty, it's focused on the outer life. Zeal for theology, no passion for Jesus. It's standing against evil in the public square and yet no love for Jesus in private. It's hiding behind a busy schedule and let no one in, not even God. That is just pure duty. If it's delight, it's focused on the inner life, not the outer, on the inner. It's focused on you and Jesus where you are reading his word and you are spending time talking to him in prayer. Throughout your day, he's on your mind. You find yourself being hungry for Jesus, and yes, you search the word, and yes, you read books, and yes, you can grow and learn, and yes, you can know theology, absolutely, you can know more about who Jesus is, but theology becomes a means to know Jesus and worship him better. It's not the end all of your faith. Theology is the means, not the end. The end is enjoying Jesus. Theology is so important because it helps us know him better, be in awe of him. And that's the goal. Be in awe. Worship him. Enjoy him. And so so when it's delight, theology is delightful because it exposes how amazing Jesus is and you love him more. And yes, you're going to serve, but you serve out of gratitude and love, not out of drudgery or duty. And you don't serve to impress anyone. You just serve because you love Jesus. Let me read to you a text that's not in Revelation. It's in in Ephesians. So the Apostle Paul wrote to this same church that Jesus is not speaking to 30-some years later. When when Paul wrote to them, this is what he said in Ephesians chapter 3. that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Man, the Ephesians had a letter written straight to them that if they had believed this, they would have never gotten where they were 30-some years later. They miss a whole heart of it. They, they had the, the knowledge, but it didn't get to their heart. They didn't know the love of Jesus. They stayed at the moral and at the theological level. They didn't actually encounter God. They didn't experience the fullness of his presence, Which is why Jesus then later tells them, man, you have really missed it. The gospel does not produce joyless obedience, nor does it produce empty theological knowledge. The gospel produces worshipers who love Jesus, want to know him better, but have a passion for him have something real, something authentic with God when they actually know him. As you wrap up, let me give you three thoughts on number three, defeating. We talked about the danger of empty religion and on how to detect it. Let's talk about defeating empty religion. How do we defeat it? Jesus says, "You've you've left your first love, but what is the solution? How do we defeat this? Verse five. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. He gives them three steps to get back to their first love. One, he says, remember Remember that time when you were on fire for Jesus. Remember when you first came to faith and you were brought to the light from darkness. Remember that season when you were really enjoying God. Remember that time. Remember, remember. Remember. Fight against the gospel amnesia and remember where from you have fallen. And then he says, repent. Repent means to change your mind and change the direction. It means turn around, go the other way. When you repent, you agree with God about what he says about you. And it results in a change of hearts. And when your heart changes, then your behavior is going to change. Your attitudes will change. Your feelings will change. Everything flows from the heart. So he says, remember your first love. Remember your fallen and then repent. Run from that sin. Another image in the Bible is when you have an idol and then you you destroy that idol. Tear down those sacred evil places. Tear them down. Destroy the idolatry and then come back and run back to God. Remember where you were and repent. Turn away from that and then number three, return. He says, do the works you did at first. He says, remember, repent, and then return. Like that lost son who was feeding pigs came to his senses. He remembered his father's house. He repented of his evil, and then he returned home to the father. This is what we're called to do. Go back to your first love. Yes, we can all wander away. Remember. And repent and return. He says, If not, I will come to you and will remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Now that's terrifying. The idea of Jesus coming and grabbing the renewal church lamp and going and putting it out and removing it? I I can't even bear the thought. Losing our identity as image reflectors, losing our identity as image bearers who reflect the light, these light bearers that we are, the idea that we would lose that It's it's hard to even contemplate. It's a horrifying thought where a church can be extinguished, lights, put out, dead. Maybe they're still gathering, but Jesus ain't there. The spirit's not there. Maybe there's people doing a religious thing, but that lamp is gone. The angel's been taken, spirit's gone, it's just it's just an empty shell. No, thank you. I want no part of that. And I don't think you do either. Verses 6 and 7, finishing this letter. Yet you have this, you hate the work of Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So they're standing against false teaching, again, praising them. Hey, you are doing this well. You're rejecting false teaching. But he says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. He says that they will have victory, they will conquer, and will one day partake of the tree of life. You know, I was talking earlier about how Artemis was the fertility goddess, and and they would go and they would worship, and it was so evil and so erotic, but it was just so dark. Well, if you look at old archaeological findings, like they found all kinds of coins from ancient Ephesus and on these coins was a palm tree but a specifically a date bearing palm tree and and the reason why is that one of the images of Artemis was this palm tree it has to do with Aphrodisiac and things that I don't talk about with kids in the room but um, it was a picture of Artemis a date's palm tree why was on their coinage. And so here Jesus ends and says, no, don't eat of the tree of Artemis. You will eat of the tree of life. And so often we look to the various trees of this world, to the tree of sex, the tree of status, the tree of financial security, The tree of a successful business. The tree of one day getting married. The tree of having successful children. The tree of whatever it is. And we think that if we eat of that fruit, it will satisfy our souls. It won't. Jesus says, eat of the bread of life. And one day we'll eat of the tree of life. And so we can eat of Jesus. Now feed our souls from him, his word. Enjoy him. And not turn to the tree of the spirit of the age but when i look at this gathering and i have the joy of knowing where a lot of you are at man what i have seen is walls crumbling I see it. I've seen over and over of strongholds of the enemy being demolished and marriages restored and lives renewed and families made whole, people that were far from God enjoying God once again. I see this church taking back ground from the enemy. I see it every day. Sometimes it's emotionally exhausting, but most days it is exhilarating. God is at work. Just look around the room and see the lives that he is changing. He is bringing his renewal. And that is our vision is to bring it to Bill County and to the nations, to the world. So it's like, are you in? I'm in. But it's only possible if we will not forget our first love. May he reignite a fire if your fire has grown cold. May we never go through the motions as a church. Let us deeply enjoy our first love.